I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another radically optimistic episode of the XPRIZE Future Positive podcast. I'm your host, Shlomi Katan, Chief Advancement Officer at the XPRIZE Foundation. At the time of recording this introduction, we are still awaiting the results from Election Day 2020, arguably the most important election in modern U.S. history. Protesters, some of them armed, are confronting election officials to either stop the vote or continue counting. Donald Trump is falsely calling the election a fraud and taking to the courts to throw out duly casted votes. In our first episode on the state of democracy, I spoke with Susan Herman and Joe Trippi about voting rights and how to reform the system to make sure we count every vote. I encourage you to listen to that episode to learn more about systemic ways millions of Americans are denied the right to vote and what we can do about it. In this episode, I speak with Brett Weinstein about an idea to completely reform what our democracy means. Through Unity 2020, Brett, an evolutionary biologist and host of the Dark Horse podcast, proposes to do away with the two-party system by forming a unity government. As a member of the intellectual dark web, Brett's views are sometimes controversial, and Unity 2020 is no exception. Nonetheless, we believe in the merit of having conversations on these topics, exploring the motivations behind them, and examining their logic. At XPRIZE, we convene the world's brightest minds across the kaleidoscope of disciplines, cultures, and points of view. The views on this podcast are those expressed by guests as their own personal views, their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of the guests or their views by the XPRIZE Foundation. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Brett, thank you for joining us today. I know that this is a, a crazy time for you with everything that's going on and also for the usual reasons. But just last week, when we were going back and forth about this episode, Facebook deleted your account without any explanation. And you tweeted about it. And this is not the first time that... Uh, that a social media platform has at least temporarily suspended you. I know Twitter did that a while ago uh, because of Unity 2020. Uh, Facebook has since restored your account, claiming that it was removed in error. But what what happened there? Well, I wouldn't say they deleted my account with no explanation. I would say they deleted my account with an obviously false explanation, which was that I had violated their community guidelines which is exceedingly unlikely because I had not been active on the platform. So um, my guess would be that this was either punitive or a warning to others who might challenge the influence peddling that has so thoroughly taken over our democratic system uh, to not engage in this behavior lest you be unpersoned by the major platforms. 
Yeah, and I and I want to dig into the the reasoning behind that, right? Because obviously the the common narrative around social media and democracy has been one election interference by foreign entities and two um, the breadth of information that is shared on these platforms that makes it so difficult for people to navigate what is true, what is false, what matters. And and you have a unique perspective on this as, as someone who has been trying to spread the word around a novel concept. T- tell me a bit more about your, your sense of the role of social media and the role of technology generally in our democracy and in building these these uh, these publics. Well, in some sense, I think we need to recognize that the uh, the hidden most dominant force of our age is one of evolutionary novelty. That is to say, we are exposed to phenomena for which we have no evolutionary preparedness. We don't know how to evaluate what it is that we are seeing. And in many ways, this is a process that has been uh, advancing for thousands of years and uh, has accelerated in a dramatic form in the last couple hundred. But the degree to which the change in our environment is now outpacing our ability to recalibrate our sensors is a hazard that uh, we're going to have to grapple with. So when we participate in discussions about the state of our system on social media, we have the sense that we are in some kind of a room or a hall with lots of other people having uh, a discussion, the nature of which we can evaluate. And there are many ways in which that's true, but there are also ways in which it is radically false. If you are in a room full of people, it is very unlikely that there is a force that is causing some voices to be quieter than others, eliminating other voices entirely. You, you basically, in a physical room, know who is speaking and have some sense that they are very likely to be a real person that you could walk up to and uh, discover their details. Whereas online, you don't know whether you're dealing with a, uh, a well-financed sock puppet account You don't know whether you're failing to hear a voice because a platform has decided that it is uh, in their interests or in the interest of the public that that voice be unhearable. And this is, I think, quite obviously deranging civilization, that uh, people do not know how to weight the evidence that they see before them because they know some of it is flatly false, Other, other bits of it have been skewed in some predictable or unpredictable direction. And that derangement is uh, going to erode the foundation of our navigation mechanism. That's a fascinating point. And if I can recast it just so that I'm, I'm sure that one that I understand it, but also to, to summarize it for our listeners. So evolutionarily speaking, we we know how to read each other's gestures. We can, I can look in your eyes and, and get a sense of whether or not, and even though we're pretty bad at judging whether or not people are lying to us, I can get a sense of how to evaluate what you're saying. I, I can place you in a social context of the other people that you know. And you're saying to some extent what has happened with social media and what has happened with technology takes away all those tools and resources that we as individuals have to judge the veracity of what somebody is saying 
or or contextualize what somebody is saying. And that makes it much more difficult for us to, to make those judgments as in, individuals. Is that the case? Sure. Um, if I can give an example, just so people have a better sense. If you and I were in a room, if we didn't know each other, and we were in a room in which you were known, and you said something, and the room erupted in laughter, I might not know exactly why that happened, but I would have the sense that you were a person whose insight was valued in that room for whatever reason, either because you knew how things worked or because you were powerful, right? The laughter would tell me something about who you were. Online, if I say something and I am dogpiled by a large number of accounts that ridicule me for um, flaws, real or imagined, I don't know whether that phenomenon is the result of a growing sense about me or whether someone has decided to create an impression about some blind spot I have or, or a personality defect, you know. And very often when you uh, click through and you see where these challenges are coming from, the accounts that are delivering them make very little sense, right? Very frequently I will see an account that follows a large number of people, like maybe a thousand, and it uh, is followed by fewer than a hundred, right? So that is already an interesting ratio. And then it may turn out that that account is very long-standing. Um, but if I go through its posts, they are not from any recognizable perspective. Um, so how do these accounts end up offering these often vicious challenges? Why are they doing it? Is somebody paying for it? Is there a grassroots uh, um, phenomenon that is attempting to steer discussion, we just simply can't know. Right. And I think the the difference then from, you know, mass media versus social media is mass media, you, you had control over what information was being put out, which sometimes is difficult to judge, but you didn't have the crowd weighing in. And you're saying to some extent, the, the that metaphor that you gave of how are people reacting helps me make a judgment on what you're saying. Right now we have a distortion of those reactions and that's causing a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, confusion around the way this works. And I think you, you, know, you, you recently, um, you tweeted about something that I think is the intersection of, of these two things, right? The, the, the role of social media, but also how that has affected the way that we think, and in particular on partisanship. And if you don't mind, I want to read a tweet that you wrote, I guess this is a day ago, right? If I'm, if I'm getting my dates correctly. But uh, you wrote, I've come to regard a partisan mindset as a serious and contagious mental disorder. It may well prove to be the more dangerous of the 2020 pandemics. And, and I wanted to understand a little bit more about that because I think that's really, you know, it's if all we have is people sharing updates on birthdays and being laughed at for that, it's not a big deal. But when it comes to affect policy and, and our perception of one another to the extent that people are willing to physically harm one another, um, I think you know, that's where these two things really tie together. And I wanted to understand a little bit more of that perspective and if you can share some more of that. Sure. Um, I think 
one has to regard the possibility that the United States in particular and the West more generally is actually in a, a dangerous moment of transition where we are uh, facing some possibility that we will take the magic that has fueled the dynamism of the West and upend it in favor of the belief that something even better is possible. If we are in that moment, and there's plenty of evidence that we are, then there's a question about how we got here. Why would a system as productive and inventive as ours um, engage in a reckless discussion about alternatives that are at best unproven? Now, I would argue that the reason that we are doing this is because there is massive frustration that people detect that the system is rigged and that it is rigged against them. They are correct in this perception. And their reaction to it misunderstands what the consequence of that rigged system is. In other words, that rigged system generates a tremendous amount of well-being, which is very unfairly distributed, but nonetheless, in absolute terms, is massive. And we are, in some sense, in a battle over whether or not the well-being of average people will go up or down if we destroy the system that is unfairly distributing that well-being. Now, what I would uh, suggest is that the root cause of our misunderstanding is the rigging of our democracy, and the rigging of our democracy is done through the two major parties, which have been captured by private interests that use them to upend any serious attempt at change that we might engage in. So what we have is a population that is effectively lashing about incoherently, looking for some lever to fix the problem, but never having understood properly what the problem is. And so my tweet was about the fact that I meet people on both sides of the political aisle who seem utterly convinced that the problem is on the other side. And I regard them as often insightful about what is wrong with the alternative, but frequently completely deaf to what is wrong on their own side. And the conversations that I have that matter most are the ones in which people have recognized that it is actually something systemic, something larger than either one of the parties that is the root cause, and therefore that the solution must necessarily involve something other than a battle between them. Right. And this is, I think, to a large extent, uh, I, I know you, you're thinking of it slightly differently, but if you read Robert Reich's latest book, The System, right, he's, his, his thinking, at least in his writing, I don't know if his personal thinking has evolved, but at least in his writing has evolved to think less of, you know, how do we make capitalism work for everybody and what are the policies and more, the entire system is set up as a, as a system that, in, in your words and his words as well, is rigged. And I think, you know, when in both cases, you're really coming at it from the perspective of first, we've got to make people aware that the system is rigged, but also how do we actually reform the, in, in your case, the political system. And so I wanted to dig into that because Unity 2020, I think, is a really, uh, compared to all other third-party platforms or all other uh, ideas for reforming the, the political duopoly. 
I think that uh, what you've proposed with Unity 2020 is unique, right? It's, it's a very different way of thinking about it. So I think first, for background, if you could describe Unity 2020 to our listeners who, who may or may not be aware, and then, and then we'll dig deeper on that as well. Well, before we do that, I want to address the, your point about, about Reich and his systemic uh, claim. One of the things that I think is most troubling about our moment is that many of the thinkers who have traditionally been immune to this partisan mindset have actually fallen into it. And if I'm not mistaken, Reich has uh, endorsed Biden, as has Noam Chomsky, Lawrence Lessig. All of the people who traditionally would have seen right past the con are in fact embracing one side of, of this uh, partisan divide. And it's very jarring because those of us who have been paying attention for decades know that these are the voices that are essential to our escape. We have to understand what it is that they see. And the fact that they may be failing to see it in 2020 uh, is quite a hazard. So what Unity 2020 is, or was, is a proposal to escape this dynamic with uh, a giant leap. And it, it was a plan to draft two candidates for, uh, for the presidency, one from the left and one from the right. They would be drafted under the agreement that they would govern as a team by consensus. The person who would run for the presidential slot would be chosen by coin flip. After four years, the positions would reverse and the person who had been in the role of the presidency would run for the vice presidential slot and vice versa. And this could go on until one person had inhabited the role of president twice and was therefore ineligible, at which point they'd be replaced with someone suitable. And the idea was to speed uh, courageous, capable patriots. Those were the three characteristics that we said were the minimum necessary in order for us to draft someone, that we would speed two people who had those characteristics past the corrupting influences that tend to block high office, and that would empower them to reform the system from the top down. Um, now, I think the, the thing that you're pursuing here, what really makes this plan different is the fact that it is apolitical and it is non-ideological. So there are, of course, many third-party options available to people. I regard them all as dead on arrival because they each come with an ideology, and that means that they are effectively in a niche. They are also in danger, were they ever to ascend to power, to falling into exactly the same corruption traps that the major parties have fallen into. But a movement, which is what unity is, that is non-ideological and apolitical actually stands to unite all of those of us who regard the corruption of our system as the enemy and the solution being the elimination of that influence peddling and the restoration of basic democratic processes which are sound. So let's dig into the, the definition of corruption here, right? Because this is a, you know, there, there are multiple definitions of corruptions. I've spent years living, I've over the course of my life, I've lived in six different countries. And corruption in the United States I've always perceived as very different from corruption in other places, right? Um, when you look, though, at, at least for me, right, when I look at the Trump administration, what I see is the type of naked influence peddling 
that you have not seen in the United States for some time, right? There's There's been this legitimation process of the influence peddling here. And so I'd like for you to kind of define what you mean by corruption, because it's it's a broad term that can be looked at in, in very different ways. And when you when you think of corruption as as something that is political and ideological to some extent, how do you how exactly do you define it? And and why do you think this is the follow on question? Why do you think that the approach of something like Unity 2020 would would deviate from that or would would not be susceptible to it in the same way? Good. Uh, if I forget to answer your second question, remind me of it because I think it's I really crucial. Yeah. Why? Why would something like Unity avoid this this process? But let's go to your first question. What is corruption? So I, I'm a scientist, and I'm defining corruption in a non-judgmental sense. When I say corruption, I mean something analogous to what might happen to a file on a hard disk, right? A corruption is a distortion of the information in that file that makes it not do what it's supposed to do. Now, our democratic process is understood from the get-go to be imperfect. Crowdsourcing a navigation uh, mechanism is fraught with the hazard that people will misunderstand where they are and therefore steer in a direction that is not desirable. But in the long term, what it is is self-correcting. That is to say, people might get the idea that something is a desirable solution, they might enact it, and then they would discover that it isn't desirable, and they would repeal it. Now, the problem is, if we divide policy into those things that are in the public's interest and those things that are not in the public's interest, the financial corruption of our system and all of the analogs of it is inherently pulling our system away from what serves the public. And the reason for that is pretty simple, if a little bit subtle. When you have a policy that is in the interest of the public and in the interests of the, uh, the moneyed firms and other entities that corrupt our system, it gets enacted easily because there's no one to oppose it. That means that the stuff that we fight over politically is stuff where the public's interest and the interests of those who own our system diverge. They are in effect paying for those in power to subvert the public interest in order to benefit them. And what that means is that policy, because the people don't have a seat at the table and these special interests do, policy over time is completely unhooked from what would be desirable from the point of view of the public, right? Our Input is minimal, and in fact, it only shows up in one place, which is in order to peddle influence, you have to gain power, right? So each of the major parties have to win votes in order to have something to sell to their real constituents. So they have to humor us, but they don't have to cater to us in a policy sense, right? Only very rarely do they do it. And this is exactly why civilization is becoming deranged, is that every so often we know that we are the focus of, uh, of these parties, right? They focus on us obsessively, and they spend ungodly sums to persuade us of things, and then it has no impact on the policy that we see going forward. Only the minimum necessary to keep us paying attention so that we keep awarding them the prize. Now... So that's what corruption is. Corruption is the distorting force that is taking 
our governmental apparatus and getting it to act against our interests. It's effectively like an autoimmune disorder in which the body politic is attacking itself. The reason that something like unity stands to change that is that it does not put those who would rise to power through the same sorts of tests that require them to demonstrate a capacity to cater to special interests. By speeding people past those influences, they can arrive in their original state. And then this is the, the part that I think is maybe hardest to see. We have, I would argue, three kinds of people in our system. We have a small number of people who are hell-bent on doing the right thing and will do it irrespective of its cost to them. We have a small number of people who are completely amoral and will do whatever is best for them, irrespective of the harm it does to others. And then we have a large number of people who participate in the corrupt system but might prefer it to be otherwise. In other words, they will play the game, but were they given the power to, to make the game function in the public's interest, they would do it. Now, unity banks on the idea that that group of people is large enough and that those in the public who can see it are numerous enough that actually we can cause a phase transition in the system if only we can gain access to power without ourselves being corrupt. That's the gamble. And, and that's a big gamble. And I, I, I want to, I wanna, on a few points there, I want to dig a little bit deeper. So, so one is your definition of corruption presumes that the system was set up in order to function in the public's interest, right? And you could argue to some extent that the system actually works perfectly to produce the outcomes that it's supposed to produce, which is not in the public interest, right? It is in the interest of the few. And there's, I, I go back to something that Susan Herman said in the first uh, part of this two-part special that we recorded. She said, voter suppression was baked in to the constitution. And the reason it was baked in was because this system was not set up to represent everybody. And it wasn't that it was an an imperfection. It was perfectly set up to be unrepresentative. We've been trying to reform that for the last nearly 250 years, some in fits and starts. And so, you know, it isn't to some extent what you're proposing, you know, it's, you're trying to reform a system by saying the system is imperfect, it's been corrupted, as opposed to the system is perfect and has corrupt intent to begin with. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Um, so let's uh, figure out how to unpack this. First of all, I would say the two things that you claimed, that the system was set up to serve the public interest and that actually the system does exactly what it's supposed to do, that strangely enough, those things are both correct. Um, the system was set up to address the public's needs and it has over time evolved into a system in which what it says it's supposed to do is not what it's actually supposed to do. In other words, the, um, the system has been taken over by a parasitic force, and it is, you know, the uh, cybernetic principle is that the purpose of a system is what it does. And our system functions beautifully to hoard power and opportunity and keep it in the hands of those who are already well positioned. It's a, it's a, it's a beautifully elegant mechanism for doing that which is perfectly vile. But, you know, in some sense, I think we need to look at it the way we look at a mosquito, right? A mosquito is uh, a, an annoyance and potentially a vector of disease. It's something we have to deal with, but it's also a marvel of engineering. 
Um, so what I would say is you don't want to conflate the fact that the republic was set up in ways that have some non-democratic elements baked in at the bottom. That much is true. But why were they baked in is the question. Was it simply a mechanism to keep power in the hands of those already who already had it? It would be a very strange mechanism to set up for that purpose because it runs far too much risk from the part of it that is democratic. So yes, the Electoral College, the Senate, and various other things are, strictly speaking, not democratic by virtue of the way they distribute power, but the basic core element of the system is A, that it is self-correcting, and it is self-correcting based on its impact on actual um, citizens, uh, and um, B, that it is self-reforming, that to the extent that corruptions crop up, it can be repaired by uh, those who are participants in the system. Um, so in any case, what I would argue is the thing it was not set up to be was effectively a monarchy or an oligarchy or any of those things. We know that because, in effect, at the point that George Washington had won the Revolutionary War, he was in a position to become monarch, and he refused it, as did the other founders. So, yes, their experiment is imperfect, but they certainly were not um, intending to uh, create yet another uh, instance of a system that keeps those in power in power. What they really did, the most important thing about the American experiment, is that it inherently opens the door to a stable, pluralistic society. And that is the thing that we have to defend. Yeah. As of, I think, yesterday, this has become the most expensive presidential campaign in U.S. history, right? And And you mentioned, like, they're using god-awful amounts of resources, ungodly sums of money to convince people to vote one way or another, right? And there's a lot because of the way, because of the Electoral College, there's a lot more money going into certain parts of the country. And it's easy to accept that situation as normal. It is easy to accept it as, you know, the only thing I hear from the political campaign that I once contributed money to is give us more money, give us more money, give us more money. We need to close $100 million this year. One person just gave $75 million to the other campaign. And I think it's very easy to um, gloss over that as, as normal. Now, given that challenge though, right? That you've got, because you said the, the big bet of Unity 2020 is there are enough people that want this system to work for everybody. How do you combat the influence of, of money, the influence of political power, of economic power, uh, the ability to deploy resources? Because to some extent, you said this, right? You, you were booted off of Facebook, booted off of Twitter, albeit momentarily, but you know, for, for saying things that I don't think are more controversial than, than things you hear either from the left or the right of, of the political spectrum. So how could have Unity 2020 combated that influence? Because when you're fighting against billions and billions in advertising and the constant media attention, it's not, it's not easy to get mind shift, right? No, uh, I do think, you know, there's a, 
a concept that I'm fond of, which is that when you face the kind of opposition that we've faced, that you should register it as f flack that you're getting because you're over the target. And the other thing is, you know, you can argue all you want about um, whether or not these platforms have the right to toss somebody like me off because they're private concerns or whether or not there should in fact be some sort of protection because they are in fact the public square. But what I don't think we can argue about is whether I'm saying anything all that controversial or radical. I'm saying that the American political system is corrupt and that the parties are the process through which that is managed. I mean, that seems to me perfectly obvious. And even if you regard it as uncertain, the number of people who share that perspective is uh, absolutely immense. So how, what does it mean for the platforms to be pulling out the big guns to get rid of somebody who's fighting corruption from a non-ideological perspective. I mean, that tells you, wow, you know, you struck a nerve for sure. And um, so in essence, I think the answer to your question is we have to figure out how to continue to point out um, the obvious and to live to fight another day. That those two things in conjunction uh, constitute the basis of a strategy. So Facebook did throw me off without a meaningful explanation, in fact, with a transparent lie that I had triggered some process for uh, discovering uh, inauthentic behavior, when in fact I was not very active and had been such a long-standing user of Facebook that they most certainly could have deduced all kinds of things about me with their, uh, their artificial intelligence. They presumably could detect you know, that I'm a straight guy, they could figure out what generation I'm in. I mean, you know, there was no way that uh, I triggered a system looking for inauthentic behavior, and then it went through some sort of a review, and they couldn't detect that I was for real. That's nonsense. So um, telling the truth, being unflinching about it, being predictive, I think this is, this is key, right? So when I started Unity 2020, I said very plainly, that we were facing a system that was absolutely characterized by influence peddling, and that this was true not only of uh, Trump and the Republican Party, but it was quite clearly true of the Democrats as well. And some people took this to be hyperbole. And then here, within a couple weeks of the election itself, lo and behold, we see evidence of influence peddling in its most literal form, spilling forth uh, from the Biden family. And we see suppression of this information by the major platforms. It's completely obvious what's going on. Influence peddling characterizes the DNC. It has everything to do with how we ended up with such an uninspiring candidate yet again running on the Democratic side. And uh, the platforms and the media are complicit. Why would they be complicit in covering up influence peddling? Because they're the consumers of the influence. They like their access. They don't want the public to restore the democratic process because that would force them uh, to compete on the basis of the quality of ideas rather than special access to the system. So at some level, how many different ways are there to say the emperor has no clothes? The reason that your government doesn't work is that it's been corrupted by very powerful influences, and we know who they are. 
Yeah, but but doesn't this to some extent start to it starts to sound like a conspiracy, right? And and this goes back to something that you said, right? There there is a small number of people that are that are only self-interested and they're they're purposely bad. There is a small number of people that are always going to be ethical and they're going to vote or decide that way. But the vast majority of people, you know, they go along with with what things are and and if you expand that beyond politics and you talk about media, then you're saying, you know, it's not like there's some some group of people sitting there going like, oh, we're only going to give voice to this or we're only going to give voice to that. You've got individuals who are with their flaws and imperfections trying to make decisions. So, I mean, to some extent, it sounds like you're saying the system can be perfected or it can be uncorrupted because most people would prefer not to have a corrupt system. But it sounds also like the the people corrupting the system are acting in a in a way that is fully conscious of it. And you know, putting aside you know Mark Zuckerberg's economic, I guess, governance control of Facebook, it's a, it's a company with thousands of people making individual decisions. So I I'm I'm struggling with that notion of. You know, we're, we're in a world of nearly, you know, more than seven and a half billion people, each of whom are making decisions on their own. It's not like the this, you know, it's it's not a cabal of people making coordinated decisions all the time. So I, I, does that make sense? Oh, of course. It's a beautiful question. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping to hit all of the elements of it here. If I miss something, please tell me. First of all, I would say we have to get better at dealing with questions of collusion, right? Conspiracy itself has a connotation as a word that it shouldn't, that calls things into question just because you're invoking it. But at the very least, when we are talking about collusion, we must always start with a hypothesis, right? The idea that we are forced to uh, a realm of theories is in and of itself a trap. So what I would say is there is collusion in our system, no question about it. We can speculate on where it lives, how it functions, and how extensive it is. The way to do that is to use the scientific method to propose explanations for phenomena that we see, figure out what the predictions of those explanations would be, and then see if those predictions turn out to be true. With respect to whether or not this is a conscious conspiracy or the result of a lot of people doing what makes sense local to their particular circumstance. The fact is, it is almost certain to be neither of those things and both of them. So what I would argue is that collusion in a system as complex as this one very frequently has a conscious element somewhere. There are people who know what the game is and know how to play it, and when they meet privately, they talk in very open terms about what it is they are up to. The vast majority of people who are involved in this collusion have no idea what role they're playing. They are simply doing what makes sense from the position of their, their job. Uh, and the result is a kind of hybrid in which there are conscious elements and there are unconscious elements. But what there is no doubt about is that the system functions to the benefit of some people and to the detriment of others. And what I would say is, look, let's see how I did in 2020, right? Back in, uh, I can't remember when it was that I was on the Joe Rogan podcast, but when I 
launched Unity 2020 to a large audience, I was very clear about the fact that the folks who were saying that Donald Trump was the problem and that the solution was to elect Joe Biden and deal with the the problem before we got to any of the other issues, which might be important, but were clearly secondary, that those people were off. The reason that they were off was that the DNC was effectively like a crime syndicate that was in control of the Democratic Party, Democratic Party to which I've been a member for my entire adult life, um, and that it was the influence peddling of the DNC that accounted for both its failure to realize the things that it claims to stand for and was also the reason that it kept advancing uninspiring candidates even when it argued that there was an existential threat on the other side. Well, as we're closing in on this election, we can now see the influence peddling is literal, that whether or not we have not seen proof that Joe Biden did anything different as a result of Hunter Biden's uh, offering him up in exchange for money, but we can see that he was offered. So somebody with the name of Biden was peddling influence. The influence they were peddling was that of the vice president. And the question is, how much effect did it have on policy? Was, was it a con or was it worse? We don't know that yet, but we can presume that in effect, these were not idle offers of power. It is certainly likely that there was some influence granted and that that's a jaw-dropping thing to discover about a major party candidate this close to an election. What's more, we know that my being tossed off of Facebook resulted I mean, for, we didn't cover exactly the, uh, the sequence of events, but I discovered that I had been tossed off Facebook when a friend posted a link to a Facebook article uh, on a private chat, and I clicked the link, at which point I discovered that I'd been thrown off, that it was irreversible, that it had apparently already been reviewed. I took a screenshot of that and po posted it to my Twitter feed. People were shocked because, of course, I'm fairly well-known and have a reputation for integrity. And so people wanted to know exactly what I did. And the fact that I hadn't done anything, I mean, literally had done nothing on the platform in quite some time, raised a lot of eyebrows. That tweet got 50 plus thousand likes, which caused Twitter, I mean, caused Facebook to back off. But how did they back off? They didn't send me an email, despite the fact that they have my contact details. They didn't send me information inside the Facebook platform explaining what had happened. They posted a reply to my tweet. Now, who did the reply come from? It came from somebody named Liz Shepard that I'd never heard of before. Liz Shepard, at the point she posted her reply, had fewer than 1,000 followers and yet was verified on Twitter. Who does she report she is in her Twitter bio? She reports that she is associated with the account The Democrats, which is apparently the DNC, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So I presented a hypothesis on Joe Rogan that the DNC was effectively an influence-peddling operation, that that was the reason that we were going to end up with an uninspiring uh, establishment candidate, and um, that... Uh, the, the DNC was the core of this operation. As we are now approaching the election, we see influence peddling is becoming undeniable that it 
includes Biden and the DNC, that the DNC is very closely associated with whatever force it is that decided to throw me off of Facebook for no reason, and that Facebook and Twitter are apparently in agreement that this account is important, which is why Twitter verified it, even though people with 100,000 followers who are notable and are frequently impersonated by others wrongly are not verified. So how much of this network would you have to see laid bare to realize that whatever hypothesis it was that caused me to say the things that I said is in some sense true? Right. I, so I, I want to ask, a, I want to go back to a question that I asked before, but I do want to just point out on, on, the, on the aspect of influence peddling that a, a Republican-led uh, committee found that Joe Biden was not involved in that. And it would be like me saying, like, you know, offering up somebody that I that I know personally for something. If they don't take that up, then I might have been trying to peddle influence and it didn't work. Right. So I get your point. I completely understand your point. I think it's a it's a perspective that is shared by a lot of people. I just want to point out, let's say Hunter Biden is going around claiming my dad can do this and my dad can do that. And his dad does not engage, then it was a failed effort at influence peddling. Well, at least no, to some it's, extent. It, it's, it's intermediate. You can say that it was peddled and not delivered, right? Um, I don't, I have not seen anything that tells us that that is the case. We have a right to evaluate the evidence that we have. That evidence has been described by a 200-year-old newspaper, that newspaper had its account on Twitter suspended, and people were prevented from circulating the journalistic description of the evidence. So I, I do not accept that it is simultaneously true that there is no reason that we should be concerned about influence peddling involving Joe Biden, and simultaneously that we should not be discussing the evidence. What I would expect, if it was the case that Hunter Biden had in fact gone rogue and that his attempt to peddle his father's influence was idle, then I would expect Joe Biden to say something very clear that we could evaluate so that we would understand that that's what had happened rather than to portray the entire thing as somehow uh, someone's plot to discredit him, which there is no evidence of that. Although a Republican-led committee found that Joe Biden was not involved, that Joe Biden, it, it did not influence any policy decisions. So I, th I understand, and this goes back to the question that I wanted to, to go back to, and it's about, so Unity 2020 as an idea is essentially, it's apolitical, non-ideological. You get someone from the right, someone from the left, they agree to share power, right? You, I'm, I'm Israeli, we've had this in Israel, right? We've had unity governments in Israel before. It, it, it is something that hap can happen much more easily in a parliamentary system as opposed to a winner-take-all system, right? So you, you can end up with these, um, you know, two very ideologically and politically different parties deciding that they should join forces because that is the only way to actually have a functioning government. Well, um, so I want to I want to pause you there. It is yep. a natural consequence in a parliamentary system for the reason you describe. The thing that made unity different was that we structurally built a mechanism 
to stabilize it inside of our first-past-the-post system. So our first-past-the-post system tends not to produce that kind of unity government. In fact, it is destructive of it. But by getting um, candidates, by drafting them under the agreement to govern together, we effectively generate the value of a parliamentary system without altering the Constitution inside of our system. And there are many potential solutions that look like this, where something that was not envisioned by the founders is made possible by a structural uh, tweak that alters the, the game theoretic landscape. Right. Which, I mean, if you go back to even the reason that we have a party ticket, right, you, you, we actually have had a president and a vice president originally because it wasn't contemplated. We had a president and a vice president from two different parties and it created all sort of, sorts of havoc because they did not want to work together. Um, but so I wanted to go back to this and this is related to that question of, okay, so you're, you're trying to stand up to a system that has billions of dollars behind it. And the truth is that you, you're, the big bet, as you called it, is that there are enough people who want a system that is by, that, you know, I'm, I'm using a term that you, you don't want to use, but that is bipartisan as opposed to apolitical. And when you actually look at the way that human beings are behaving, at least in the United States, they are very entrenched in their political affiliation and their party affiliation. One of the interesting things is when you actually look at how people feel about policy, they tend to support policy that does not align with their political affiliation. But they end up saying, well, you know, I'm a Republican, I'm always a Republican, I'm going to vote Republican, even though the policies that I would want to support are not aligned with the policy platform of the Republican Party. And so how do you combat that? You've got, you've got the billions of dollars that are being poured into these campaigns. And you also have people that are very much entrenched, that are very much aligned with the party. You, you said, I've been a registered Democrat my entire adult life. There are people who talk about being a fifth generation Democrat, right? It's passed on. So how does something like Unity 2020 and beyond, right? You're talking about what starts off as a 16-year cycle. What was your vision for combating that that piece of you've got to actually convince people that this is an alternative to the world that they already subscribe to? Well, there are a couple layers to the question. One has to do with how much of our tribal reaction to the political landscape is organic. One thing that is the case is that in order for the influence peddling entities to keep playing the game that they're playing, we have to not find out that what unites us far exceeds what divides us, right? The moment we discover that, the influence peddlers are in big trouble. So much of our division, I believe, is not organic. It is being seeded in order to continue to play a game. And in effect, I would argue that whatever portion of it is conscious, we can debate, but that in effect, the DNC and RNC are in agreement about keeping us divided in this way, because even though each may find itself out of power for a period of time, um, the amount of power that it has in the long term is much greater than if we had a, a vibrant democratic system functioning. Uh, so one answer is to, to emphasize the point to Americans 
exactly as you said, when we study what people actually want at a policy level, we aren't so far apart, right? There are some basic differences that I've seen in talking to people on the left and the right. We tend to differ in our assessment of how fair the system currently is. Uh, and we tend to differ in our assessment of the danger of new policy and the unintended consequences that flow from it. What we don't seem to differ over are the basic descriptions of what kind of system we want. It's only a tiny fringe that want a system in which some populations have advantages over others. Most people want a fair system that gives people the tools to succeed, that uh, allows them to do it, that protects them from bad luck, and that allows for a certain amount of inequality that is the result of hard work and insight. Um, so to the extent that something like 60%, 67% of the population, according to the Hidden Tribes report, is in basic agreement about what America should look like, why are we so fiercely divided over um, you know, the color of the uh, banner behind the candidate that we favor, right? It's an absurd thing to be, to be fighting each other over. Now, there is also the fact that the tribal affiliations, which you point out, although they are being amplified by cynical forces, are the result of an evolutionary history in which we have uh, collaborated in order to compete with others. And the key to us reducing the degree to which our system is driven by that is the recognition that the greatest threat to us is not the people in the party on the other side. It's the dangerous world that our system inhabits and the risk that we will be so focused on the hazard here at home that we will open the door to something much bigger and more hazardous and less fair um, to move into the power vacuum that we will create. And you'd be shocked at how resonant that message is. In testing the waters with unity, we discovered lots of people can see this. And the recognition of um, the difficulty of keeping our system stable and functional so that it can self-correct uh, is, is substantial. People understand it. And placed in proper context, they're much less tribal here at home because they understand the world is a dangerous place. Yeah, and I think that Joe Trippi uh, in our in our previous episode made an, a similar uh, point that he he lamented that people were not talking as if we were part of one team, and that sense of civic cohesion was somehow being torn asunder by the current partisan divide, right? That, that exactly what you're talking about, that if people just recognize that for the most part, we actually do agree with one another. And I think this is why historically you tend to see no matter what position somebody stakes out prior to becoming president, except for recently, when you become president, you move towards the middle, right? Because ultimately from a purely mathematical perspective, you have to represent the middle otherwise you can't in a in a in a two-party winner-take-all system you cannot be an extremist and expect a large share of the vote um i you know there are and this came up in our in the previous conversation um there are mechanisms to uh to make sure that there is representation of some voices that are more extreme but for the most part there's a big chunky middle that that wants to uh, 
that wants stability. So what's next? What, how do you see this going forward? And, and, uh, and what's next for, is there a unity 2024? <laughs> um, there might well be, uh, let me address a couple things you said, cause I think we've really gotten to the, the heart of the matter here. Um, there is an uncomfortable duality to the idea of centrism. I have a very uncomfortable relation with centrism because I often find that people who see themselves as centrists lack imagination and basically it's a kind of, uh, you know, cryptic gridlock for the system. I personally am very far on the left. I believe we are going to have to radically change the system if we are to survive just by virtue of the fact that the system was built for realities that don't look anything like the 21st century. So I believe radical change is necessary. In setting unity in motion, I set my ideology aside. My bet is that in a vibrant democracy in which we are actually talking about um, the world as it is and the solutions as they might exist, that what I believe is likely to win out. But I don't want it to win out because I hold these positions. I specifically want to lose where I'm incorrect, right? There are things that I probably believe that if manifest in policy would produce outcomes I wouldn't favor. And so the hope is that the centrism that wins out is the centrism where we of all stripes meet in the middle to discuss what we are to do and better arguments prevail over worse arguments. There are places where the right has been correct about the nature of the world and what we should do with it, and there are places where the left has been correct. And so what we should expect in a functional democracy is effectively uh, some version of dining a la carte, where we take the best of what it is that the right understands and the best of what it is the left understands, and we compile them into a coherent uh, singular vision of how we move forward. We discover what each side didn't understand. We correct and get better over time. So that's the vision. And it does require, and I will say that the nature of the unity movement on the inside was very much a place where people from every ideology gathered did not view differences of opinion as some sort of a failure of character. And it was, at, at the very least, a proof of concept that such a discussion can happen and is worth having. I do want to return to the, the point about the influence peddling that may or may not be implied by Joe Biden uh, that we are discovering here at this late hour in the election. This is a battle for the highest office in the land. This is not a question of whether or not Joe Biden or Donald Trump or anyone else has been convicted of a crime. This is a question of whether or not they achieve a high enough standard that they can be trusted with the immense amount of power that goes along with that office. And so what I would say is I don't want your listeners to hear me as saying Joe Biden is guilty. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it is apparent from the outside that there's an awful lot of influence peddling. Those of us who are not party to it don't know how it works. But what we can see, the glimpses that we get of the mechanism tell us that there are things that look an awful lot like influence peddling way too close to the person we are contemplating putting into that office. And that should give us pause. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party should be advancing candidates who are beyond question in this regard. Such people exist. And the fact that they do not rise to a position of candidacy tells us that this system is doing something that is not in our interest.
So you asked uh, about where we go going forward. Um, let's just say that we made a conscious decision in the unity movement to function as a completely grassroots entity. That is to say, we decided that the hazard of uh, soliciting donations and attempting to compete in the way that more powerful political entities compete was something we weren't yet in a position to manage and that it needed to be done well or not at all. And so we decided not to do it. And that taught us something. It taught us that it was possible to build a grassroots movement, but it was not possible to scale it. And it is necessary to scale such a thing in order to win. So our sense is that going forward, the lessons of unity need to be brought together with sharper, more powerful tools. And we are currently gearing up to do exactly that. So people should expect to see the unity movement return. They should expect it to remain in character just as it has been, non-ideological and apolitical, but they should expect it to fight uh, at a, a larger scale and more forcefully. Well, I think that's a, that's a very strong message on which to end. Brett, I want to I wanna thank you. This has been a really fascinating and illuminating discussion. I, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to, to have these digging deep on these things and, and looking at it from the scientific perspective. How can we really suss it out with nothing off the table, no sacred cows. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to have this conversation. I want to thank you uh, for that. And as I mentioned in the intro, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to part one which is already out. It's a fascinating discussion with Susan Herman and Joe Trippi. And if you'd like to hear more from the Future Positive podcast from XPRIZE, then please like and subscribe to this. You'll get automatically downloaded into your device. And of course, the Dark Horse podcast, which Brett hosts, you can find that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere else where you listen. Brett, thank you once again, and uh, have a great rest of your week. Uh, thanks so much, and good luck to us all. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.